Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Colossians. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 2, the first couple of verses. But I would like to begin in verse 27 so that we gain the benefit of the context. Colossians chapter 1, verse, actually verse 28. And we proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and all who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that as we uh, turn to your word and consider these words of Paul to the church at Colossae, that you would give to us this moment insight and understanding, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see clearly your message to us. And Lord, I want to ask that it make a difference, that we don't just gain some information here this morning, but that you change us because of our encounter with you in the Word. And that we walk out of this place different people with, with a different set of expectations if those need to be corrected, that our goals and, and our values and our desires have been changed because we have had this time with you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, in these last couple of verses of chapter 1 and the first couple of verses of first verse of chapter 2, talks about a struggle that is going on inside of him. And um, you can probably relate to that if you think about it a moment. If you're a parent, if, uh, if you have a responsibility for a group of people, if you have uh, a responsibility for a mission or a goal, and and it depends on the performance of people, whatever, uh, you know that people don't always do what they're supposed to do. Sometimes the consequences are slight. Sometimes they're huge. Sometimes failure may cost a life. Other times it just simply costs money or some project or goal or something. In the case of your children... If they are being pushed and pulled in ways that you know are not healthy for them, it causes a great amount of anxiety because you know that their future may be at stake. And for Paul, as he is writing to this church, 
And he mentions that not only is his passion and his burden for the churches that he personally planted, but it's also for those who have not seen him personally. Paul has a concern for the church, not just the individual churches in the cities, but he has a concern for the church, for the bigger picture. And his burden is that they will be distracted from the simplicity and the purity of the gospel message. He explains that in verse 2 when he talks about the goal. He, and this whole paragraph derives to this one goal. He says, I really want you to know, to have a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. That's literally the way it is. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you know that the words, that is, and himself are in italics. That means those words do not occur in the original. They were added by our translators to help make better sense of the sentence. Sometimes they do that, sometimes they don't. But really, Paul is just coming to a full stop, and he says, I really, I really want you to get the full, rich implication of, of the knowledge of God's mystery. Christ. And our objective in our spiritual walk is not to, to know stuff. It's not to, it's not to have a bunch of facts or, or a bunch of rules or, or some kind of religious formality that governs, you know, our lives in a static sense. But the goal of our walk with God is to know Him to come into a personal relationship with Him. This past week at District Conference, Herb and I uh, had the privilege of, of hearing um, Sky Jatani, who is the senior editor of Leadership Magazine and also a member of our district community. Uh, we had the privilege of having him speak to conference in the four opportunities to, to have kind of a, a spiritual uh, message and input into our lives. The whole thing is supposed to be spiritual, but we often make that dichotomy between voting on the budget and listening to a sermon. Sky was bringing the sermons, not the budget. And in uh, each of those messages, he was kind of giving us a recap of his uh, re recent book that he has published called With. Now, With is a strange title for a book, but he made a, an excellent point in that, and I thought about how much it related to this passage, because Sky, if I can give you like a three-minute summary of his messages to us, basically said that all the religions of the world, and this is very insightful, all the religions of the world are based in fear and develop around a means of controlling God. Now, just think about that a moment. We live in a dangerous place. 
I don't know if you've noticed that. But this world is not a safe place. We hope that we can get through life without ever being ill, without ever being traumatized, without ever being heartbroken, without ever having tragedy or disaster strike and somewhere about the age of a hundred die peacefully in our sleep and go to heaven. We hope that, but we know that most people do not get through life unscathed. We know that the world is full of disease, it's full of tragedy, it's full of meanness, that there are wars and rumors of wars, there are natural disasters. We know the economy is, uh, is goofy. I uh, was uh, just channel surfing one night in my hotel room, I think it was Tuesday night, just trying to find something to watch for a few minutes, and I happened on a, on a documentary going back and looking at the crash in 2008, just a few years ago. And I, I guess I never realized this, but the people on Wall Street were talking in terms of end-of-the-world collapse. They were not looking at one company failing or another Uh, when they were talking about Lehman Brothers going down and the feds kind of allowed that to happen, and then they were talking about the insurance. I always could, I never have been able to figure out why did the U.S. government give to banks billions of dollars? Just give it to them. Under the auspices of kind of stimulating the economy and helping out homeowners, but the bottom line is that money was more or less given with no strings attached. And ultimately, what it boiled down to was the the top financial gurus of this nation were looking at the imminent disaster in the loss of confidence in the market, and they were using words like end of the world, economic collapse, the entire world in pandemonium, all the markets failing. And out of fear, they pumped billions of dollars into shoring up the banking industry, lest the entire world come to an end. That's the kind of conversations they were having. It's like, whoa. They were serious. They were scared to death. And so most of us recognize that as we go through life, We are living in a planet that is not very safe. And so, what do we want to do? If we can't control the planet, if we can't control the environment, if we can't control our lives, maybe we can control God. If if He's in charge, maybe we can get on His good side and induce Him to do what we want. And so, Sky made the observation, and I think he's dead on the money, that all the religions of the world are fear-based behavior seeking to manipulate God to get Him to do what they want. And so, you invent regulations, you invent rules, you invent rituals, you invent styles of worship, you invent sacrifice, you come up with all kinds of ideas. If, if I do this, then God will do this. If I give Him this, then He will give me that. If I'm really, really good, then He is obligated to bless me. 
the plan is to work God. To kind of get Him to, to do stuff for us. And the tragedy is that there is very little difference between what is going on out there in the religions of the world and what is going on in the church of Jesus Christ. If we are not careful, if we do not keep our focus on the goal, if we do not have the, the right understanding of what this salvation is all about, then we will fall into that same trap of hoping through our worship, our obedience, our rituals, our disciplines, whatever it is, that if we just do the right stuff, God will get on our team and do the right stuff for us. And that is not what walking with Christ is all about. Paul says, I really want you to get God's mystery. And I'm afraid that these false teachers that have come into Colossae and into Laodicea and that are beginning to pull you, I'm afraid they're distracting you from the simplicity. But we're going to find out as we get further on in chapter 2. They're talking about uh, learning certain new kinds of of meditation and ways of, of approaching God. And, and they're talking about um, rituals that you can follow and different sets of prohibitions and aesthetic practices that you can engage in that will entice God to be good to you, give you a better understanding of, of how to make this divine thing work. And Paul says, I'm very concerned for you. I'm, I'm worried that you're missing that you will miss the, the true heart of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ by being distracted by all of this other stuff. And he says, I'm laboring over that. I, I'm like a, like a parent with a, with a child that's going off the wire. I, I'm burdened. I, I am struggling. I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm concerned and I'm fighting for you with intercessory prayer, lest you get distracted from this simplicity. Because the whole point of our salvation is so that we can come back to the heart of the Father. I don't know how much time you spent thinking about why God saved you. But he himself tells us why he saved us. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God saved us and came to us and called us back and invited us home through Christ because of his love. He loves us. As amazing as that is, He loves us. And He desires, He desires us. When the prodigal left home, and you can look at these two fellows, because there, there were two prodigals. One of them did not leave home, the other one did. <laughs> but they both had similar kinds of problems. Uh, when Jesus told the story of the prodigal, He talked about the one that left home, 
this guy said, Dad, give me all I've got coming to me. Give me all my money. Uh, I want to take it now, and I want to go out and do, as, do, do with it as I please. Basically, what he was saying was, Dad, I, I don't really care about your house. I don't care about you. I don't care about being in the family. That's not what's important to me. What's important to me is stuff. Uh, I need money. Give me my money. I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for it. You're, you're taking too long to die. Um, just give it to me now, and, and I want to go do what I want to do. And he, t- he takes off. You know the story. He takes off. He goes to a distant land. He spends all the money, as you might expect. Most people say when they get an inheritance, or statistics say when you get an inheritance or you win the lottery, no matter how much it is, the average uh, lasting time is three years. In the end of three years, whether you won five five million or five hundred thousand, or you got an inheritance, it's all gone in three years. That's the average. And he spent it all in riotous living. Ended up in a pigsty, and life was not fun. And he got to thinking about it, and he got to thinking about home. Now it's interesting that he was not thinking about his father. He was thinking about his circumstances. And he said, I don't like being here. I don't like the pigsty. The servants in dad's house have life better than I do. So I will go home. And when I get there, I will tell my father how foolish I've been and how sorry. And I will ask him to make me a servant in his house. Quite honestly, the young man did not have great motives when he left, and he didn't have great motives when he went back. In both cases, he was thinking about his own desires and what would make him happy. And when he headed back, that was what was on his mind. When he got back, he was surprised, I think, by the father's response. His dad was waiting for him. And he received him with open arms, put his arms around him, welcomed him home, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, symbol of the family relationship, had them kill the fatted calf, prepared a feast. It's an amazing story of the father's love for the prodigal. And then we hear the story of the second guy, the older son, and he's jealous. The younger son's getting all of this attention given to him. And so he comes and he says, I'm really ticked. All these years I have served you. I want to ask you something. Does that sound like any Christians you know? All these years I have served you. Where's my party? Where's my celebration? Why don't I get some stuff? That says a lot about why he was serving. That kind of gives us insight. And it gives us insight into why a lot of us are serving. Because we're expecting a kind of return. For our own comfort. And the father kind of looks at him and says, My son, I don't understand. All this time you have been with me. 
You see, the thing that was important to the father with both of his boys was that they were with him. The service, the obedience, it's not that it wasn't important, but it wasn't the goal. The goal was the intimacy. The goal was the fellowship. The goal was the closeness of father and son. You have always been with me. Sky pointed out to us, and I'm terribly plagiarizing his sermon. It wasn't even in my notes. But Sky pointed out to us that so often in life we go about seeking all these different treasures, hoping that somehow we can induce God to give them to us. Whether it's, you know, fix my marriage, fix my health, fix this, fix that, uh, meet my needs, pay my bills, straighten out my kids, whatever it is. You know, we're, I want you to do this, God, I want you to do that. Why didn't you ever throw a party for me, God? And, and we're trying to get God to give us all these treasures. And we fail to recognize that He is the treasure. He is the treasure. Paul says, I want you to know in experience God's mystery. The mystery is Christ. I want you to know Christ. I want you to, to have a relationship with Him. I want you to walk with Him every day. I want to ask you this morning, what is your relationship with God like? Do you know His presence throughout your day? Do you experience Him? How often do you talk to Him? I'm not just talking about formal, quiet times of prayer. I'm talking about throughout the day, it is, is, are you aware that He is with you in every situation? Do you know His presence? Is He kind of like the first one you think of when a thought comes through your mind? Do you find that you have a running conversation with God? Paul says in one of his letters, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. And, and we read that and we say, well, he's kind of using hyperbole there. He's get pray without ceasing. He's meaning pray a lot. And I really believe that what he is saying is pray all the time. You don't even have to use words every time. But you have to be in, he's saying, be in communion with the Father all the time. So that he is always your confidant, always your, your friend, always abiding in your mind, the first one you turn to throughout the day in every situation, and always listening to him. Because prayer, communion, is a two-way conversation. And to pray without ceasing is to live in the presence of God, able to hear His guidance even as you relate to Him. 
When you see something very beautiful, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You know? Is it just the fact that it's beautiful, or is it, oh, wow, God, is that cool? That is so pretty. I like that. God, you did a great job. You know, even if some human being made it, (laughs) you know, God, you put such neat things in the heart of man. It's so neat. Do you see God in the events of your day? See, this is what Paul wants them to get. This is, this is what's in these verses. He says that your hearts, this is my concern, I'm praying that your hearts will be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the false teachers were saying, come over here and we'll give you some inside information. We have some mystery ideas. We'll, we'll give you some secret code. We'll show you how to really get God to do stuff for you. We'll teach you the formulas. Um, we'll show you different ways of meditation. We'll help you connect with the power of the universe and you can harness that for your purposes. Don't you hear this stuff all the time? This is not first century stuff. This is human nature. We want to control God and we want to know what the keys are. What, what meditation can I use? What mantra can I pick? What formula can I employ? If I, if I spend ten minutes a day with God, is He going to do stuff for me? And, and these false teachers were coming in with all these angles. And Paul says, I I don't want you to get distracted by that. I don't want you to get sidetracked. I want you to have a full understanding which comes from a true knowledge of God's mystery that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you have your study guide in front of you, I kind of, I had a professor that one time said when you're bringing a sermon, leave all the preparation in the kitchen. Don't, uh, don't bring the pots and pans and the stirring and the, you know, the mixer out to the table. Just bring the, the meal. Well, I have to confess that I brought the kitchen out this time. And um, because I, I, there's some words in here that are really important. And the problem that all translators have is how can we take the, the, the meaning in whatever language and translate it into this other language in the simplest, most succinct way and keep the sense of it. And the problem with verse 2 in Colossians is that, that Paul uses words that are like rich in meaning. I mean, they're just full of meaning. And it's almost like you can't put them into one English word. And so they made choices, and they're good choices, and I'm not telling you that there's any earth-shaking doctrinal transitions if we interpret these a different way. But what I want you to see is that the words that Paul uses underscore a point. He says, I'm praying for these people, you and the Laodiceans whom I have not seen, that your hearts would be encouraged. Now, the word encourage here is paraclete, or 
parakaleo, and that particular word is the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 when he says of his disciples, I want you to turn back there with me for a moment, in John 14, verse um, 16, I think. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. Now, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and the word helper there. Some of your translations use the word comforter. And most of you have had enough Bible study that you know that that word is paraclete. I'm going to give you a paraclete, a comforter, an encourager. He is going to come with you. But notice how closely truth is linked here. This comforter is going to come with you. And what he's going to do is bring the, the truth to you. He's going to remind you. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you everything and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So notice what it is that the Holy Spirit is going to be doing when He comes. He is going to be teaching us. He is going to be bringing to our remembrance the things that Jesus said. In our case, we didn't have the privilege of hearing Jesus talk personally, But we have the Scriptures. And one of the blessed things about the Holy Spirit is, if you are exposing yourself to the Word of God and putting that Scripture in your heart and mind, it is available for the Holy Spirit to bring up at the most interesting times. He can, you know, you can be just uh, reading along in your Bible and kind of maybe going through the Bible in a year or reading it, uh, you know, is your habit after dinner or in the whenever you want to do it. You can be reading along in your Bible. And, and I'm not talking about just uh, so many times in a quiet time. It's like, oh, i got to get through four chapters in order to read the Bible in a year. So I'm going to plow through my four chapters. And, you know, when you think about uh, how well you did on the 14th hole or how poorly you did or, you know, what's happening on TV or something going on at work or... You know, you got all these things going on in your mind. But let's let's say that you're just you're really focused. You, it's not a matter of how many chapters or what, but you're reading your Bible. You're really focused. You're thinking about what you're reading, and it's kind of sinking in. And you say to yourself, "Wow, that's interesting. I'm not sure I know what all that means." Doesn't matter. Just let it sink in. The Holy Spirit will explain it to you. He will bring it to mind and explain it. And the thing that will happen is you'll be kind of rocking through life and you'll come up on this situation and you'll be saying, I wonder what I should do here. And a scripture will pop into mind that you've read. Or you'll be thinking about one problem over here and wondering you know, some solution to it, and the Holy Spirit starts bringing to mind other things that you've read, and they begin to converge, and it's like, oh, wow, that's what that means. I mean, God does that. And when you put, when you put it in, 
the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And the word paraclete, even though it is translated comforter, I, I put on your um, sheet, and I don't seem to find mine, so if you have yours, oh, here it is. If you have yours, look at it. I put on your sheet um, this, this little box, uh, kind of oval here that's dark in the middle, and I know you can't see the writing I put in the middle. But what I want you to remember about this word is that its root meaning is to come alongside the root meaning of the word paraclete is to come beside or to come alongside of. And you can come alongside of people for a variety of reasons. You may come alongside someone who's grieving because they need you to put your arm around them and, and bring them comfort. Just entering into their pain with them. You may come alongside someone who feels like they've failed and, and they're losing hope, and you may come alongside of them to encourage them. You may have a friend that's in a fight, and I'm not, I don't mean the verbal kind. I mean they're in a fight and they need help, and you come alongside to cover their back and lend a hand to get them out of the trouble. You came to support them, to strengthen them, to fortify them. In other words, this root meaning goes in many directions. The core concept is that he comes alongside, but it has with it the idea of strengthening or establishing or fortifying, and that brings encouragement with it. So, so you see how all of this kind of plays together. So when Paul says... In this passage in Colossians, I am, I am praying for you and asking that you can be um, encouraged. He says, I want your hearts to be fortified. I want you to be strengthened. I want you to be built up. I want you to be lifted up. And the word heart, cardia, you recognize that because we get our word cardiac from it. But the word heart... Peter O'Brien in his commentary in the Word Commentary series says we need to get out of our culture when we encounter the word heart in Scripture. Because normally when we talk about heart, we're talking about emotions. That's our frame of reference in our, in our culture. But in the Bible, the word heart is not restricted to emotions. In fact, it is deliberately larger than emotions. If the Bible wants to speak only about the emotions, it talks about the bowels. Pardon me if that bothers you, but that's, uh, you know, down in the tummy, in the abdomen, is where we kind of feel the butterflies. That's where we react. And the Bible uses that uh, physical analogy to talk about feelings. But the word heart in Scripture means the core of your being, the center of your mind and your will and your direction and the flow of your life. It's everything about you. It's the center of who you are. And so Paul is praying that their lives, the core of their being, the center of who they are, will be fortified and strengthened, lifted up, so that, he says that having been knit together in love, 
and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. This concept of being knit together in love and attaining to the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, if I can summarize that for you, it means to become sound and well-established in truth. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to fortify and strengthen us in the core of our being in the truth built up in love. And when we're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ, truth is terribly important. The reason it's so important is because if you do not have the truth about Jesus, you're Worshipping an idol. The God of Scripture represents Himself in specific ways that are revealed in Scripture. And if we do not have that concept of God, that concept of Jesus Christ in our minds, we are worshipping an idol. I think I shared with you a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. I was having an interesting conversation with someone um, who was uh, feeling a little sheepish uh, because they were talking about having uh, one relatively small ticket in the lottery, but they weren't quite sure how I would react to that. And it's always interesting when people get uncomfortable around me because I'm a preacher, you know. I kind of have a sadistic kind of fun with that because I think, what, what are they thinking anyway? But anyway, anyhow, uh, like I'm going to do something. I, I don't have any power. I mean, I don't know what they're worried about me for. Um, I used to have people at the fire department apologize when they would swear around me for taking God's name in vain. And I and try to explain to them, I, I'm not your problem. Doesn't matter what, I'm just another person need to think about God when you, you know, do that. Well, that, I don't know if that helped their comfort any. But, but this person was talking to me about gambling, you know, and so I thought I would just, you know, really um, mess with their mind a little bit. And I said, you realize that there's nothing in the Bible against gambling. There's not one verse in the Scripture against gambling. Now, some of you are disturbed with me now. <laughs> But that's the truth. You will not find one verse from cover to cover that prohibits gambling. There's a lot of verses in the Proverbs about using money stupidly, and I'm sure you could make some of those fit. My brother says uh, the lottery is a tax on stupidity. But there's, there's no prohibition. So this got the fellow to thinking, and he, he thought, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. The Bible has something, or has nothing to say about gambling. It's kind of interesting. Next question. Fascinating leap. He said, do you believe in a fiery hell that is eternal? And I said, well, yes. And he said, well, I don't. And I said, really? He said, no. He said, I have children. I'm a father. He said, I don't care what they do. They could never make me mad enough. I mean, I love my kids. I would never send them to hell. He said, I can't imagine uh, the Heavenly Father sending anybody to hell. And I said, well, it's interesting you should say that because that is in the Bible. You know, if you want to talk about what's in the Bible, that is in the Bible. 
See, and a lot of people want to come up with their own idea of who God is. They, they want to make up a God in their mind that they kind of like. And so they're going to have a, a friendly God, loving God, who doesn't ever punish anybody. Well, you miss something. Because there's an awful lot in the scriptures about God's justice, about his righteousness, about his holiness, and about what happens if you're on the wrong side of that when you take your last breath. It is appointed unto man once to die. After that, there is a judgment. And, and that judgment results in a place of eternal torment. The scripture is very clear. And so what Paul, in essence, is saying here is, he says, you need to come together, you need to be unified around the truth. You have to be fortified with the truth. Your convictions have got to be, as we put it, we've got to be on the same page. And the thing that builds our unity is that we do embrace, essentially, the same, the same truth. The Bible puts it this way, how can two walk together unless they're in agreement? I mean, you can, you can love someone who is not a believer. You can, you can have a friendship with them. Hopefully you will love them and you will have a friendship with them. But there's always going to be a certain estrangement until they come to know Jesus Christ because you cannot have true communion with someone who does not know Jesus Christ. It's never going to happen. And you can't have true communion with someone whose goals as a Christian are off in a totally different direction. You know, I cannot fellowship comfortably with name it, claim it people who are totally into the prosperity gospel. They have, they have a wrong concept of God. They are trying to get God to serve their needs and meet their wants. They're trying to manipulate Him into getting what they want. And they come out with stuff like rules and principles and formulas. If you give this, God will give that. If you do this, God will do that. Just kind of get this reciprocal thing going here. And God, that's not true. That is not true. It doesn't work that way. In fact, most people get disappointed with God because they don't think He plays by the rules. I did what I was supposed to do. Why didn't you do what you were supposed to do, God? I punched all the tickets. I did all the things that they told me I should do as a Christian. And look at what's happening to me. Why aren't you playing with me? Why aren't you in the game? And and all the while, God is saying, I'm God. You missed something. I'm God. And what I'm inviting you into is a relationship with me. And that relationship is based on truth. And so Paul says, I'm praying for you. I'm concerned about you. That you come under the truth and that you come to a true knowledge of God's mystery. Now when he says a true knowledge, he's not talking about something going on up here. He's talking about something gained from experience. And, and, and we can draw a line under this. True knowledge underscored. I want you to come to an experience of knowing Jesus Christ, who is the mystery of God. And in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, friends, it's not that God doesn't want to do stuff for you. It's not that He doesn't want to give you things But what he really wants is to walk with you. 
He wants to live life with you. He wants you to live life in Him. He wants to have a relationship with you. He saved you for that purpose, to bring you back into His house and have fellowship, communion. And then when we need when we need stuff in life, when we need to know, when we need to understand, when we need to get it, in Jesus Christ, in the person of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Him. It's not like He said, okay, here, I wrote this book. You can read it and figure it out for yourself. Uh Uh-uh. It's here. But you need Him to explain it. You need, you need Him not only to explain what's here, you need Him to explain what isn't here. You know, as I was saying to the first service group, um, did you know that, that God is a master engineer? Did you know that He's an artist? Did you know that He's a chemist? He made the molecules. Did you know that he's a physicist? He made the laws of physics. Did you know that he's a great physician? He knows the ins and outs of our body. There's nothing God does not know. There's nothing he cannot do. And, and I love the testimony of those people who have come to walk with him in such a way that they have learned that he knows more about their job than they know. He knows more about the people they're responsible for than they will ever know about those people. He knows more about the mechanics of an automobile than a mechanic will ever comprehend. And he is able to impart, you see that word all? Again, the commentators say, well, they're talking about everything that's that's significant about about life principles. No, no, no. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All knowledge is in Jesus Christ. You need to know something? He knows it. He can direct you. He can bring things to your mind. He can connect the dots. He can walk with you throughout the day and give you insight that you never dreamed imaginable. You should have seen how happy Dick was this morning as he told the story of being here with a contractor who spoke Spanish at 7 o'clock yesterday afternoon when a woman who only understood Spanish was waiting to get information about the church. Do you think that was an accident? Do you think God knows what he's doing? And it is just absolutely delightful when God does that stuff. And do you know that he can give you guidance and direction and insight and wisdom and knowledge? And it's amazing. It's amazing. As you live your life in dependency upon a walk and a fellowship with Jesus Christ. He just wants to do life with you. He invites you back home to be with you, for you to be with Him. He is the treasure.
Paul says, that's what I want you to get. I don't want you to lose it. And I don't want you to get sidetracked by a bunch of junk. Jesus is the mystery of God. I want you to see him clearly. Father, I pray that you would draw us into that relationship where the chief joy of our life is Jesus Christ. I think about another illustration that Sky gave when he was preaching and and he talked about the idea that if we would be just as happy in heaven if Jesus weren't there then we probably won't be in heaven because we've missed it we've missed the point Jesus is the point to know him to love him to be where he is to do what he is doing to do life with him is eternal life. Whom to know, Jesus, is eternal life. Lord, adjust our focus this morning. I'm so glad that we don't have to go through any of the valleys, struggles, or tough times of life without you. And I'm so grateful that you care so deeply about every one of them that you will never leave us lonely or forsake us, that you will never leave us in the lurch. But, oh God, deliver us from the shallowness of always just seeking you for the stuff we can get. And bring us to that walk with you where you are the treasure and the confident assurance that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can interrupt that communion. And therefore, nothing can ever really hurt us because we are safe and secure in you forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.